Hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, welcome, welcome to our general session this morning. We're honored to have each and every one of you with us this morning. I like what I feel in this place today, amen? I like what I feel in this place. I'm thankful I know who I am, amen? Thank you, Brother Jackson, for that word, holding on to our identity, holding on to what we believe uh, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. There's something powerful about the name of Jesus. We had a little lady praying in the church, in the church, and and uh, we we had a Saturday night prayer, and and she was we were praying, and I heard a little lady in the back, and she she was it was it was different than I'd ever heard before, and I it, I had to get up and go back and look, and I walked around, and it was a little lady by the name of Ceci, and Ceci came from Honduras, and she was out of uh, a Trinitarian uh, situation, and, and she was travailing and praying in a way that I'd never heard her pray before, and after prayer, I walked up to her and I asked her, I said, what happened? Something happened. Something's different. She said, Brother Pugh, she said, I've never seen it before, but she said, this week, God revealed to me one God, and his name is Jesus. She said, I never realized that the same God that created me is also the same God that died for me. And it changes everything. And I'm so thankful that I know who Jesus is today. I'm so thankful that the same God that created me, that it's in his name that I'm healed, that I'm delivered, that I'm saved in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It's good to have Brother Woodward with us this morning. How many people have enjoyed Brother Woodward this week? We're honored to have you. Thank you so much for being here, Brother Woodward. Come and preach to us. And uh, we're just so thankful to have you in the great state of Louisiana. Amen. Praise the Lord, Louisiana. Isn't Jesus awesome? I love that little song they just sang, but I sure wish we could lift up our voice and just say thank you to the Lord for all he's done, all he's doing. What a great song. What a great day. What an awesome God we serve. Huh. Uh, if you'll pardon me for just like a minute, uh, I would be remiss if I just didn't say thank you to... Uh, everybody for the privilege, the honor of being here. Uh, Brother Weber and the district board, thank you uh, so much for the opportunity. Uh, this is the fourth time that I've had the high honor, the distinct privilege of serving as Bible teacher for your camp meeting. And uh, every time is such a blessing to me. Uh, my, my, my. The Lord has been with us this week. And I'm so grateful. It's always an honor to be in Louisiana, as I told you uh, on the first morning that I had the privilege of speaking to you. This is our adopted district for Beverly and myself. We have a wonderful district at home, but this is our adopted district. We love so many friends here, so many ministries here that have impacted us. My pastor is here, and I thank God for his covering. I feel it when his mantle rests on me every once in a while when I'm preaching or teaching. And I thank God for great men and women of God that serve us. You're going to have to give me a little bit of grace here. I need to take just a second. In the middle of January, uh, 
an unexpected, uninvited, unwanted issue invaded our lives and Beverly had a diagnosis that uh, was concerning to us. This body of Christ is amazing. Over the last six months or so, thousands of people have prayed for my beloved little lady. Hundreds and hundreds of people have reached out. So many times they would have no idea, but the text would come just at a perfect time. The call would come just at the right moment. This morning, our wonderful son, Matthew, took Beverly to an appointment. She got a call yesterday, and her surgeon said, we want you to come, and uh, you need to come in tomorrow. We want to meet with you. And I was talking to her on the phone, and I think there was a tiny little bit of anxiety in her heart for a moment. And... Uh, they called when they were on the way back from the appointment this morning with the surgeon. Surgeon said, we got everything. We took out about 30 some lymph nodes all around just to make sure there's no cancer in any of those. There's no cancer in any adjoining tissue. It's all self-contained. In fact, there's no cancer in your body. Lord, I want to thank you. All my life you have been faithful. He makes a way where there is no way, rises up from an empty grave. There's no sinner he can't save. Let me tell you about my Jesus today. And if you're still in the middle of whatever journey it is that you are on, hang in there. God is faithful. Jesus is still on the throne. He's still in control. I'm trying to hold it together, but I feel like shouting. I've been shouting ever since I got off the phone. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, great friends in Louisiana, for praying for us over the last little while. We love you so much. I have been compelled these are truths that I have loved for years, but in the last few months, I have been compelled to revisit them personally. And what I will teach you this morning, uh, it's been introduced already about four times in the service this morning. What I will teach you this morning is core apostolic doctrine. It is what makes us who we are, and I will dare to say what makes you different than any other people on the face of the earth. To be apostolic is not just some kind of teaching. It is not a style, it is a lifestyle. It is not just another teaching, it is the Word of God. Uh, the most important voices you will hear, I thank God for all the great men of God that I've had the honor of serving with in this ministry team this week, but the most important voice you will hear will not be a voice at this camp meeting. It will be when you take what you experienced at camp meeting and you go home and you serve your local church under the voice of your local pastor. Aren't you grateful for the men and women of God that teach you and love you and counsel you and pray for you and serve you? 
thank you for allowing me that time to just be a little personal. Would you go ahead and be seated, and then when you get there, would you throw the devil off his game by clapping your hands with great enthusiasm? Lift up your voice like a trumpet in the sanctuary. Bless the name of the Lord our God. He is mighty. <laughs> there is no one like him. There is no one greater than him, higher than him, better than him. He is our Savior, our Lord, our King. He is awesome. It is entirely accurate to say that the Apostle John has the last word about Jesus in the New Testament. For several reasons we could say that. John is described six times as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is part of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. John is the one who sits closest to Jesus at the Last Supper. John is even a first cousin to Jesus because their mothers, Mary and Salome, were sisters. John is the last one to leave the cross as Jesus is dying. And he is also the disciple entrusted by Jesus himself. In his very last moments on the cross, he entrusts John with the care of his mother, Mary. You could argue very efficiently and effectively that John is the closest of all the disciples to the Lord Jesus. And so he's the obvious final authority. He is literally the last word on the life and the death of Jesus. But John has the last word for another reason. His writing is incredibly powerful. It's probably my favorite book in the New Testament, although I have learned not to pick favorites because it changes from month to month. But his writing is powerful because the ministry and the words of Jesus are burned into his brain and seared into his spirit. And even decades after the fact, he can remember. His memory is so keen that he still remembers the very hour that he met Jesus, 4 p.m. one afternoon. He vividly recalls little tiny details. John remembers that there were six water pots at the well, at the wedding in Cana. Who remembers that? I don't remember how many gifts we had at our wedding. He remembers that the Samaritan woman got so excited in talking to Jesus that she left her water pot at the well in a thrill to share her testimony. He still remembers that an anonymous cripple at the pool of Bethesda had been sick for 38 years. He still remembers that the high priest's servant was named Malchus. He even remembers what it would have cost to feed the 5,000 if they'd have had to pay for it. He says it was 200 penny worth of bread. John is amazing. He's an eyewitness of all these things. And that's what he says, 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled. We touched Jesus. We walked with Jesus. We talked with him. He was the word of life. And let me tell you how it works. For the life was manifested. We have seen it and we bear witness and we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. 
But you know, other disciples were eyewitnesses too, so there has to be something more than that to John having the last word. You see, John is the last surviving elder of the New Testament church. His gospel, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation are the final documents written by any of the apostles. I'm aware that Revelation is placed last in your Bible, but chronologically speaking, all five of John's books belong at the end of the scriptural record, and there's even a group of scholars that think that his gospel is actually the last book to be written chronologically speaking. Here it is. As John puts his pen to paper, he's writing more than 60 years six decades after Pentecost. John is very much aware he is the only original voice left. Matthew and Mark and Luke wrote tremendous documents, but they wrote their gospels to the Jews, to the Romans, and to the Greeks some 30 years previous. They're gone his friend Peter is gone. Peter was crucified head downward at his own request because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his master. The apostle Paul is gone. He's also been gone for about three decades. His prolific pen was silenced forever because he was brutally beheaded by the despotic emperor Nero. But every one of those martyrdoms, they are 30 years in the rearview mirror. So when John picks up his pen and puts it to parchment sometime just after A.D. 90, he actually does have the last word on Jesus. It's an amazing thing, the day we live in. It's very similar to the first century. So many false doctrines are floating around in what we call Christendom today. Many of these groups, teachers, preachers, churches, they give Jesus prominence. But that's not what the Bible says about him. He's not to be just prominent. He's to be preeminent. Jesus, his name, his word, and his spirit are to inform and guide and infiltrate everything we do. This is exactly what makes the apostolic church different. We are governed by our allegiance not to a creed, but by our allegiance to a name. We are not ashamed to pray in his name. We are not ashamed to call on his name. We sing to his name and about his name. Every sermon an apostolic pastor preaches is filled with this name that is above every other name. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It's a strange day that we live in. There are even forces afoot in Christendom. I have been startled and shocked and dismayed by the number of evangelical pastors from mainline evangelical denominations. Some of them are now on a campaign to throw out parts of the word of God. And they were raised in denominations that cut their teeth on the infallibility of the scripture. And they are on a campaign. I listened to one of them not too long ago. 
literally telling us we need to toss out the Old Testament. It's just a good storybook. It's kind of a neat little thing. It's an add-on, but you need to start your teaching and your preaching and your belief in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Let me tell you something. Until the books of the New Testament were written and distributed in the first century, the Old Testament scriptures were the only word of God possessed by the early church. Yet with only the Old Testament and the help of the Holy Ghost, those early Christians were able to preach the gospel and win the lost in a dynamic way. Don't you tell me to throw out the Old Testament. Peter quoted Joel at Pentecost to explain the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He quoted Psalms to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his defense before the Jewish council, Stephen opened his sermon with Genesis, closed it with Isaiah, and referred to Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Amos in between. Philip taught the Ethiopian eunuch about baptism in Jesus' name using only the writings of Isaiah in a chapter that doesn't even mention water. <laughs> Paul even quoted an Old Testament verse about oxen to teach the churches to support their spiritual leadership. So here is the point. In their theology, in their decisions, in their ministry, the early church depended on guidance from the Old Testament scriptures. So here's how it works, brothers and sisters. Apostolics have access to the entire counsel of the Word of God. We don't have to throw out any of it. We even have access to the miraculous parts, Brother Dross, because those are in the Word. Oh, my goodness. Furthermore, Paul wrote and said, for all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and in him amen. So I know how it works with the Old Testament. I know when God said to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you. I know. I got a brain that was written to Joshua. But because every promise of God in Jesus is yes and amen, I can claim that promise. You can walk home to your house after camp meeting, walk in your living room and say, I claim this house in the name of Jesus. Devil, you're not welcome here. I know it was written to Moses, I am the Lord that healeth thee. I know that was for Old Testament Israel. But hey, all of the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen. Don't you back up or back down or back off of the apostolic message that the Lord has invested in his church. So when John picks up his pen, all those martyrdoms are 30 years in the past. He really does have the last word on Jesus. And that's why his gospel is so unique. By the close of the first century, false teaching, like I've described, is already beginning to rear its ugly head in the church. They're trying to redefine Jesus and redefine their relationship to the law and redefine all kinds of things. And that's why the gospel of John does more than any other gospel to tell us, not just what Jesus did, not just where Jesus went, not even just what Jesus said. John's on a mission to tell us who Jesus is. I stood in this very camp meeting, in this very pulpit. 
I stood here 12 years ago and I told you if we lose that revelation of who Jesus is, no other revelation you've got even matters anymore. John was one of the original oneness Pentecostals of the first century. And when he writes his gospel, he wants to anchor the next generation to this truth. I stand here as the Bible teacher this morning and I say, I want to make sure I anchor the next generation of apostolics on my horizon to this same truth, that Jesus is the mighty God in Christ. 1 John 5, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three, they're not one, but they work together. They agree in one. That's how you were born again, of the blood and the water and the Spirit. But when it comes to the nature of God, these three are not similar. They're not working together. They're not just agreeing. These three are one. And the operative, emphasized word in these verses is not the word three, it is the word one. John is not alluding to a trinity at all because at this point in church history, the only people who have a trinity are the pagans. There are lots of trinities in rank paganism. In the Far East, India has trimurti, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, that's a trinity. Israel's ancient slave master, Egypt, has a trinity. Osiris, Horus, Isis. Israel's ancient arch enemy, Babylon, they have a trinity. Nimrod, Tammuz, Semiramis. The brilliant Greeks have a trinity. Zeus and Apollo and Athena. The Romans have the Capitoline triad. Jupiter, Juno, Minerva. And every time Israel backslides, they play around with a Canaanite trinity. Molech, and Ashtoreth. That is not what John is talking about. That is not what John is writing about when he says these three are one. He wants your mind to rocket back to this verse, Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And so from his opening sentence, John is on a mission. He wants to prove to you Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was. He is the true and the only God in a body of flesh. If you worship Jesus, you're worshiping God. If you pray to Jesus, you're praying to God. If you sing about Jesus, you're singing about God. And so 90% of John's gospel is unique. He's very selective about the miracles he records. Some are unique only to John. You wouldn't know about the raising of Lazarus if John hadn't written his gospel. And the miracles that he does record, he usually twins them with Jesus' teaching in some way. All four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, but only John records Jesus' powerful sermon that's associated with it when he feeds the 5,000, and then he turns around and tells them, but I am the bread of life. I'm that bread that came down from heaven. So the Gospel of John is very unique. There's no parables here. But there are many conversations, sometimes lengthy ones. Everywhere, Jesus is revealing his identity and he's revealing his will to people who will listen. And John's writing has many different unique features. Only in John 
do we see verily, verily. It's in there 25 times. Anytime John wants to point us to a revelation that Jesus is giving, he uses that double amen. Verily, verily, amen, amen. You see, here's why. John is not writing a biography of Jesus. He's writing a theology of Jesus. So there's no Christmas story in John's gospel. There's no baby in a manger. There's no Bethlehem, shepherds, wise men, star, angels in the heavens. John knows that the birth of Jesus was very well covered by Matthew and by Luke when they wrote their gospels 30 years earlier. John also knows that the truth of the incarnation has been believed and preached by the New Testament church even longer for more than six decades. So on the incarnation and on many other doctrines, John assumes that his readers already know what Jesus preached and what the church practiced and preached. So it's incredibly important, and here's my point in a nutshell this morning. It's incredibly important to read John's gospel as the last word. To know and assume that John's writing comes after the gospels. It comes after the book of Acts. It comes after all the New Testament epistles, not before them. Here's why that's important, apostolic brothers and sisters, because we live in a world where denominal Christendom has decided that we can have all kinds of different versions of what we would call the new birth, all kinds of ways to be born again, all kinds of ways to become a believer, and they like to quote verses from different books. One of the verses that's a beautiful, powerful verse that they love is John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that who Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's beautiful, it's powerful, but listen to me. That verse was never preached by any apostolic preacher in the book of Acts. It was written 30 years after the book of Acts closed. So please hear me. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm trying to teach you the word of God. John 3.16 is powerful in light of Acts 2.38. John 3.16 is revelation in light of what came 30 years earlier, Acts 2.38. No preacher stood up and quoted John 3.16 in the New Testament. It hadn't been written yet, but they turned the world inside out and upside down with this message. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That set this world on fire. Let me tell you, it'll still set this world on fire. It'll still change lives. It'll still still revolutionize cities. To put it plainly, John is given the last word in the Bible because he most clearly presents Jesus as the last word from God. Jesus isn't just like God. He isn't just part of God. Jesus is God in a body of flesh. It's everywhere in this gospel. I am come in my Father's name. I and my Father are one. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. You see, God has always manifested himself in various ways. He always has done that. But Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God. 
Jesus is the last word from God. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, he always was speaking. He always was revealing himself. But he has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the exact, the express image of his person, up holding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Brother Pugh, you introduced my sermon this morning because here's why. The same God who created this universe, the same God who formed the mountains when you were a rank sinner and had no hope, he's the same God who robed himself in flesh and shed blood for you. He went into the grave, but that's not the end of the story. I know it's an old message, but it's the most powerful message that the apostolic church has access to. It is your secret weapon. Every other revelation operates underneath this revelation that God and Jesus are indeed the same. My, my. Revelation 19, John writes in his book, I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And when you get to the end of all things and he shows up, he will be clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. That's not the blood of Calvary. That's the blood of the judgment of his enemies. It's He's trampling out the vintage where his grapes of wrath are stored, the old song says. And so that's blood splattered up on his garments because the first time he came, he came in weakness. But the next time he comes, he's coming in power. The first time he came, he came in Bethlehem. But the next time he comes, this whole world is going to see him. Every eye is going to behold him. When he comes back, his name will be called the Word of God. I thank God for this great book that I hold in my hand, and we call it the Word of God. But this Word of God only operates because it is the supernatural revelation of the Word of God who is the Lord Jesus Christ. My goodness. The Word is a person, and that person is Jesus. And that's why John's gospel starts so differently than Matthew and Mark and Luke. John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John means for you to remember this little verse, Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, he's echoing, God created the heaven and the earth. 
And then, of course, you know this verse, verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When they looked at Jesus, they were looking into the face of God who had robed himself in a body of flesh. 90% of John's gospel is unique. Even in its structure, it's unique. The first half of John's gospel covers three years of Jesus' ministry. The first half of John's gospel is three years. And it includes seven signs, seven miracles that prove Jesus' divinity. He turns water into wine. He heals a nobleman's son. He heals a lame man, feeds 5,000, walks on the water. Do you know there's a scripture in the Old Testament book of Psalms that says God alone treads out the waves of the sea? When Jesus stepped foot on the Sea of Galilee and began to walk across the waves, that was God's word being fulfilled. He heals a blind man. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And John loves sevens. His gospel contains all kinds of sevens. In the gospel of John, there are seven titles of Jesus. There are seven sermons by Jesus. There are seven witnesses to Jesus' deity. And if you back up and compare all four gospels, you'll even find out that there are seven sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross. But there's even more than that, brothers and sisters. Only in John's gospel does Jesus talk at such length about his identity. That's why John is the only gospel writer who intentionally records what our theologians call the seven I am statements of Jesus. It's everywhere in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the He that followeth me will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Even when the worst case scenario unfolds in your life, if I can overcome the grave, I can overcome anything that is messing with you this morning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the true vine. It's everywhere. And it's invisible in the English scriptures because we only see a pronoun and a verb, I am. But it's quite apparent in the ancient languages. In the Greek, it's ego, I me. A carpenter from Nazareth is literally using the ancient name of God that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. When God spoke to Moses and said, I am that I am. And here's Jesus. This man, this teacher, this miracle worker, this prophet, whatever they think he is. He's walking around their streets. And he's walking up the lanes of Israel through valleys and along lakes and rivers. And he's teaching and doing miracles but what irritates them is not so much the teaching or the miracles. It's that he keeps claiming to be almighty God. Jesus uses that name of God, I am, casually to refer to himself. 
And that's why there's not only those seven distinct I am's, there's seven other times in John that Jesus uses I am, ego I me, in reference to himself. He says in chapter four, I am the one that speaks to you. In chapter six, I am, so be not afraid. Chapter eight, I love chapter eight. If you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. This revelation is an accidental or incidental apostolics unless you believe that Jesus is almighty God there's no power in his name to save you from your sins he says to them in chapter 8 when you have lifted up the son of man he's speaking about the cross on that day you will know that I am and I really love this one he looks at them and they're arguing with him who are you to tell us this you're just 30 something years old who are you to tell us all this and he looks back at them and he says you don't understand before Abraham was I am that's bad grammar he should say before Abraham was, I was, and put it all in the past tense. Or say before Abraham is, I am in the present tense. But he's not talking grammar. He's using an ancient name. So he says before Abraham ever left that land of Ur of the Chaldees, before he ever set foot on his journey to the promised land, your father Abraham, your patriarch Abraham, your, your uh, forefather Abraham, before he ever did that, I was there. I gave him the direction. I set him on that path. Before Abraham was, I am. Theologians today, they get it all messed up, but they knew exactly what Jesus was saying because at the end of that chapter, they took up stones and tried to stone him. But because that wasn't just a prophet, he just walked out of their midst and kept on walking on his daily journey. He says in chapter 13, when this has come to pass, you will believe that I am. He says three times in chapter 18, I have told you that I am. This is our revelation. This is what undergirds the apostolic church. Every preacher, every singer, every leader, every saint of God, every prayer meeting, every miracle, everything that you love, everything that you wonder at, it's all in the name of Jesus because Jesus was and is and ever shall be almighty God. I am 61 years old. I cut my teeth on the carpet under Pentecostal pews, but it hasn't gotten old to me. I still get excited every time I look into the Word of God, and I think that the God who formed the mountains I was admiring yesterday, he's the God who's walking with me today, and I get to call him by his name, and his name is Jesus. Now, John spends the last half of his gospel summarizing just the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So the first half is three years, and the last half of John's gospel is just one week of Jesus' ministry. John spends five chapters detailing the last conversation Jesus has with his disciples. It's that conversation at the Last Supper. And early in the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps doing this. They'll say, Jesus, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that miracle? Or why don't you show yourself? And he will say, the hour is not yet come. 
Mine hour is not yet come. But once you get to that conversation, at the beginning of the last week of his life, his conversation changes. And now Jesus begins to say, the hour is come. And he becomes a man on a mission. After they eat the Passover meal, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he knows that his betrayer Judas is already at work. And you can feel the Gospel of John just begin to accelerate. The pace of the narrative is picking up and it's moving quickly to a conclusion. John 18, Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come upon him, he went forth and he said to those who came to arrest him, one man against an entire battalion of highly trained Roman soldiers. He said, whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. The little word he, check it out. It's in italics in your Bible. It's not in the original. He wasn't giving them a grammatical sentence. He just looked at them and he used his name, the revealed name of Almighty God. And when Jesus said, I am, they fell backward and they went to the ground. The power in his name could knock down an entire battalion of highly trained, very efficient Roman soldiers. If his name could knock down soldiers, his name can knock down sickness. His name can knock down opposition. His name can knock down the enemy of your soul. I wish somebody would take 30 seconds and lift up the name of Jesus because in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is our revelation. This is apostolic doctrine, but this is Bible truth. Yes, yes. My goodness. He could speak that name at a well and change a sinful woman's life forever. He could speak that name in a storm and he could actually empower a disciple named Peter to get out of a boat and start to defy the law of gravity and walk on the waves of the sea. And he could speak that name in this garden and knock down an entire battalion of soldiers. So the theologians may miss a bunch of this but we don't miss it. Except you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Now that name Jesus is using, it's, and this is Bible class, okay? If you get stuck or you're out in the deep weeds, just say, Woodward's a teacher, bless his heart, and you'll be over it. It'll be fine. This name that Jesus is quoting, it's an ancient name. It's the revealed name of God in the Old Testament. And that name that he quotes, I am, it comes from four consonants. The scholars call it the tetragrammaton, four letters. We would say it's Y-H-W-H or Y-H-B-H. And we would say Yahweh or Yahweh. It's four consonants. There were no vowels in that ancient Hebrew language, so they would insert the vowel sounds. They would, when it was written down, they didn't put the vowels in that name, so they would insert vowel names, and so Y-H-W-H became Yahweh. There's no accurate full English translation for that name, so we would just have to say something like the eternal. 
And later, because the English language changed, the Word of God never changed, the revelation of God never changed, but the English language changes, we end up later with these four consonants, J, H, V, H, and we also put vowel sounds in, and we say Jehovah. When you say Jehovah or you say Jesus, that's the same God. It's not a junior God of the first God or the, no, it's, it's, it's God. Now, the Jews, they became paranoid at one point in their history. After the Babylonian captivity ended, so this is about 450 B.C., they come back to their land. They're scared to death because they know that their sin, their rebellion got them into trouble. And God allowed his own people to go into captivity. And they get that. They understand that. And they're terrified of that happening again. So they know that in the word of God, in the law of Moses, it says that you should not blaspheme the name of the Lord. So they decide we're going to just kind of go overboard here. And so they actually passed a law in about 450 B.C. They, they outlawed the use of the name of God. You could not speak that name, that holy name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. You couldn't speak it. And first they made a law for the common people, so none of the saints could speak his name, only the priests and the Levites. Later they passed a law, the Levites couldn't speak his name, only the priests. And finally they passed a law saying, only the high priest can actually say the name of God out loud, and he can't say it every day, he can only say it inside the Holy of Holies on the great day of atonement one day a year. That's the only time we would dare to speak the name of God out loud, because we're so scared of blaspheming his name. How ridiculous is that, that the original oneness people of the Old Testament got so scared of blaspheming the name of God that they wouldn't even say it out loud. That's a pretty powerless kind of a religion. And finally, after Simon the high priest, when he died in A.D. 70, about 300 years before Jesus' earthly ministry. When Simon died, he was a high priest. He was the last high priest that we know of that actually said the name of God out loud. And they passed a total prohibition. Nobody can speak the name of God out loud, not even the high priest, not even on the great day of atonement. And so they put in a substitute word. They'd be reading through the beautiful scrolls of scripture. Everybody knew those wonderful words and they would come to the name of God in scripture. But the reader, the scribe, the, the, the rabbi, the priest, they couldn't say that name out loud. It was outlawed under their own law. And so they wouldn't say it. They would use a substitute word. They would say Adonai, which means Lord. And so they'd see the name of God, but wouldn't dare speak it out loud, and they'd just say Adonai. And the whole congregation would respond Hashem, which means the name. They knew the name of God was there. They knew what the name of God was, but they didn't access the name of God. They didn't use the name of God. They didn't speak the name of God. Can I tell you what a terrible waste it would be for apostolic believers who know who Jesus is to never pray over somebody that's sick in his name. Never teach a Bible study to somebody and explain his name. Never preach a sermon and exalt his name. Never sing a song and lift up his name. If you've got that revelation, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the world around you to lift up the name of Jesus. Don't be a New Testament oneness believer that doesn't even use the name of God.
Let me hasten. <laughs> so this is why John's gospel is so powerful and beautiful and striking to me. Because John records this. Suddenly a carpenter from Nazareth of disputable parentage, in their opinion, he's walking around their streets using this name of God. And he's using it as if it's his own name. Every time Jesus says, I am, that is a name that has not been heard in Israel for 300 years. Nobody has spoken the name of God out loud for three centuries in Israel. And suddenly, this carpenter from Nazareth is just spouting this name all the time. But when he says this name, all of a sudden miracles happen. Multitudes are fed and graves pop open and blinded eyes pop open and crippled limbs are straightened and lepers are healed and because he had a right to use that name because he was almighty God in a body of flesh. When Jesus uses I am, he's not just using a pronoun and a verb. He's reaching back to a burning bush. He's reaching back to the patriarch Moses. He's reaching back to the first time God ever said, I am that I am. When you worship the name of Jesus, it's a powerful thing. There are many covenant names in the Old Testament. There's Jehovah-Rohi and Jehovah-Rapha and Jehovah-Sabaoth. There's all kinds of covenant names of God, and they all mean beautiful and powerful things. But I'm so glad I live in the New Testament because if you're driving in New Brunswick, Canada in the winter and you're on an icy road and your car kind of swerves out of control, I'm really grateful that I don't have to say, uh, Jehovah, Jehovah, Rapha, my healer. No, that's not what I want right then. I may need that later, but I don't want that right now. <laughs> Are you glad you don't have to go searching through your memory? Some of us can't remember where we left our car keys before service this morning. I don't have to go through all that because in the New Testament, there is one great covenant name that enfolds every Old Testament covenant name. And when I say Jesus, I've said it all. Every Old Testament covenant comes rushing to my aid. Every kind of deliverance comes to bear on my life. It is all wrapped up in the name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I wish you'd take a second and worship him. I wish you'd take a second and lift up your voice because your voice is the center of spiritual warfare in your life. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. The greatest thing you can speak is the name of Jesus. The greatest prayer you can pray is the name of Jesus. Oh, my. Let me take a little momentary detour. There, there's a Hebrew code in the Bible. It has nothing to do with when JFK was shot or any of that stuff. Now, that's just all fiction. But there is a Hebrew code in the Bible, and it's obscured in English. The Bible wasn't written first in English. But this Hebrew code, the Jews loved it and cherished it and studied it. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And so when we read in the Gospel of John, we see I am, we just think that's grammar and we move on. But when Jesus said that out loud, the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. He's saying, I am. Much of the Old Testament was written in this kind of coded form. 
It's not mysterious at all. It's just beautiful. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, is written in this coded form. Psalm 119, you check it out in any classic edition of the English Bible. And uh, Psalm 119 has 22 sections. And they're each labeled with a little Hebrew letter. And that is because each of the eight verses in each of those 22 sections begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So all the first eight verses, they all begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Eleph. And then all the, the next eight verses, they all begin with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Beit, and on it goes. It's beautiful, and it made the word of God so beautiful to the Jews, and they memorized massive sections of the word of God. You go to the book of Lamentations. First chapter, 22 verses. All the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order at the beginning of those verses. It's beautiful. Second chapter, 22 letters. Fourth chapter, fifth chapter. The third chapter, 66 verses. The pattern's like A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. It's beautiful. You go to Proverbs 31, the, the, what we call the Proverbs 31 woman. Read that sometimes. There's 22 verses describing that beautiful, powerful woman at the end of Proverbs 31. It is an acrostic. It's the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet signifying that this is a beautiful, full revelation of truth because the verses begin with the alphabet. So, so that you don't need to know. There's no test after the morning service, but here's what I want to tell you. The Jewish scholars missed nothing about the Word of God. They studied its intricacies and its details, and it's astonishing to me that they knew so much about the divine arrangement of Scripture, but when God came to bring them divine atonement, they shut him down, and they didn't believe believe. It's unreal. And one of the details that the Jews were fanatical about, of course, was the name of God. But when God came in flesh using that name, they crucified him. There's this odd little commandment in the book of Leviticus. It's part of the law of Moses. It's buried in there among a whole lot of other laws. Leviticus 21 and 10, he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, that is consecrated to put on the garments. He shall not uncover his head, and he shall not rend his clothes. Fast forward to the week that Jesus is on trial in the very courtroom of the high priest of Israel, Caiaphas. Mark 14. But Jesus held his peace, and he answered nothing. And again, the high priest Caiaphas asked him, and he said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus looks back, at the high priest of Israel. Remember, that high priest has never said the name of God out loud in his entire life. His father, also a high priest, never said the name of God out loud in his entire life. His grandfather, also a high priest, never said the name of God out loud in his entire life. And now this carpenter on trial with dirty feet and sandals and already being beat and, and tortured by the angry mob, this man looks back at the high priest of Israel and says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest Caiaphas got so angry in that moment that he reached up and he rent his clothes and he said, what need we any further witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. And that whole mob condemned him to be guilty of death. But when the high priest Caiaphas reached up and tore his clothes, he broke the law of Moses. He dis 
disqualified himself from serving as the high priest. You can't have Israel without a high priest. Where did the high priesthood go in that moment? I'll tell you exactly where it went. That authority lifted off of Caiaphas and the Old Testament law, and it went over and rested on Jesus, the prisoner of Caiaphas. So when Jesus went to Calvary, he wasn't just a martyr or a murder victim. When Jesus went to Calvary, he wasn't even just taking a sacrifice. He was the high priest taking a sacrifice of blood for us. Hebrews 4, we have such a great high priest passed into the heavens. He's Jesus, the Son of God. So let's hold fast our profession. This high priest, he lived here. He was one of us. He's touched with the feeling of your infirmity. He was in all points tempted just like you are, yet without sin. So here's what we can do today in this camp meeting, on this day of miracles. Here's what we can do. We can walk boldly right up to the throne of grace, and we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need because Jesus is our high priest. If you're sick in your body, you can be healed in Bible class this morning. If you have a situation at your home, this high priest can walk into your home while you're here, and he can change everything. My goodness. Jesus has enraged the Sanhedrin repeatedly. He's been doing this for three and a half years, but this time they think they have him because he's uttered the name of God in a court of law. Under Roman law, they can't execute anybody, so they rush their prisoner to Pilate, the the Roman governor, and they demand that Jesus be crucified. And Pilate, we don't know what he knew. We, We have no idea. But it looks like he suspected something amazing about this man. John 18, then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him, judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said to him, It's not lawful for us to put any man to death. The Romans have that power. We don't have that power anymore. Why did that happen? That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying which death, what death he should die. If Jesus had been killed by the Jews for blasphemy, he would have been stoned to death. It would have eviscerated every beautiful Old Testament type. But he wasn't stoned for blasphemy. He was lifted up on a Roman cross, fulfilling his words. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Fulfilling his words. When you have lifted up the Son of Man on that day of the crucifixion, something's going to happen. Then you will know that I am. I encourage you to read the Gospel of John because if you get to this point, you can feel prophecy accelerating. It's, it's amazing what's happening. Pilate releases the robber Barabbas and has Jesus scourged and allows his soldiers to mock Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and the crowd still cries out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate talks with Jesus multiple times and comes out with this conclusion, I find no fault in him. 
Matthew's gospel even records that Pilate frantically washes his hands and declares, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. And Pilate's wife has a dream and she sends him a note. Don't you have anything to do with that just man? I've suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the Sanhedrin, they are determined to crucify Jesus because they see him using the name of God and they don't like it. So they manipulate Pilate using political pressure. John 19, from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews kept crying out, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar's. Whosoever maketh himself a king is speaking against Caesar. So Pilate, we've got you backed into a corner. There's nothing you can do to save this man that you're impressed with, and Pilate knows it. He can get in major trouble. He can't do anything except maybe there is one little thing he can do. Maybe Pilate, the governor, can at least recognize what this good man said about himself. Maybe that's why Pilate keeps referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews, even when the Jews don't want him to say that. He has no idea that he's actually fulfilling prophecy when he presents Jesus to the crowd early that morning and he says to them, behold your king. He has no idea that at that exact same moment the Passover lamb is being prepared for sacrifice in the temple. We got a lamb over in the temple being prepared for sacrifice and Pilate is introducing the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world to go to sacrifice. Sacrifice. John 19, it was the preparation of the Passover, about the sixth hour. He said, behold your king. They said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. He said, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And so he delivers them. He delivers Jesus to them. And they take Jesus outside of the city wall at the north part of the city of Jerusalem to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. It is a place of execution, but it sits on the highest point of Mount Moriah, the highest point of the city of Jerusalem. This is the place where Abraham offered Isaac. This is the place where David made a sacrifice and stopped a plague. This is the place where Solomon built a glorious temple and the glory of God filled that place. This is the place where the prophet Jeremiah sat in a cave and wept over Jerusalem. You can feel the streams of prophecy converging on a place called Golgotha. When you sing about the old rugged cross, that's not a sad song. That's a victorious song. It was a tragedy, but it ended up a triumph. It was a defeat, but it ended up a victory. It was the closed door of the grave, but it ended up in the open door of the resurrection for everybody. John 19, he bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. But Pilate, I don't know what he knew about Jesus, what he suspected, but he's not finished yet. I don't know whether he understands what he's doing. I'm not qualified to tell you that. But his actions that afternoon are prophetic. John 19, Pilate wrote a title put it on the cross. The writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And it was written in three languages, Hebrew for the Jews and Greek 
for the Greeks and Latin for the Romans. And then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, don't you write it that way. They came rushing to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews. Change that inscription, Pilate. Add a couple of words to it. I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate looked back at them. I have no idea what he knew or suspected about Jesus, but he said to them, what I have written, I have written. It's amazing if you look at it. There was no problem with that inscription. It's just an epitaph over a condemned criminal who's going to die that afternoon within a few moments or a few hours. Nobody cares. The Greeks don't care. The Romans don't care. But when the Jewish elders begin to gather to gloat over their triumph and to gleefully grin as they watch Jesus in agony on the cross, suddenly they see something. The scholars of the law understand something. As they look at that inscription over the head of Jesus, Hebrew reads from right to left. It reads backwards. Over his head is Yeshua HaNazari Vemelech HaYehudim, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Nobody else cares what's written, but when the Jews see it, they are suddenly horrified. They're rushing to Pilate. You gotta alter that. You gotta adjust that. You gotta change that. Why? Because all they could see was the pattern of a condemning acrostic because if they looked at the first letter of each of those words over Jesus' head was Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, Y, H, W, H, written over Jesus' head for the entire city of Jerusalem to see was Yahweh is on this cross. Yahweh is shedding his blood. Yahweh is here to redeem you. My goodness. But it's even more beautiful and powerful than that because it's not just the first letter of words. You see, every letter in the beautiful Hebrew alphabet has a picture associated with it. It's amazing. That little tiny uh, letter, Yud, Jesus said, not one Yud or one tittle, not one jot or one tittle will pass away. That little tiny letter, Yud, it means the symbol is a hand. And that, that other letter, the big kind of squarish letter, hey, the symbol of that, hey, means behold. And the symbol they associated with it was a window. So it's like looking through a window. And then that long, narrow letter, vav, it, it resembles a nail. So, and they, they associated these letters. Every letter in the Hebrew language, it has a picture associated with it. You've got to imagine this because the name of God wasn't new. The name of God was ancient. The name of God had been revealed to Moses thousands of years before at a burning bush, but encoded in the name of God was this. Hidden in the name of God from the moment he revealed it to Moses was the message of Calvary. Behold the hand, behold the name. In the name of God was a prophecy of Calvary. It was a prophecy of Jesus. I'm hastening. On that day, all around the cross, creation began to speak loudly in recognition of the Savior. The sun darkened, and the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the graves opened, and the veil of the temple, it rent from top to bottom. But when all around the cross, creation started speaking over the cross, heaven just started speaking. And so written over the head of Jesus was, behold the hand, behold the nail. There's still power in in those nail-scarred hands. 
to lift you out of any situation, to heal any sickness, to deliver from any kind of bondage. I need like two or three minutes, but we got about 30 seconds for this. Lift up your hands and worship him for his nail-scarred hands. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. There's nobody like our Jesus. There's nobody like our God. This is the name that is above every other name. You feel that? What you're feeling is the name of Jesus activating as you worship him. What you feel is the name of Jesus activating as you praise him. There's healing in the name. There's deliverance in the name. The Holy Ghost is given in his name. <laughs> Somebody shout yes! When you shout yes, you're saying, I affirm it. Every promise of God in Jesus is yes. In Jesus is amen. Now shout the name behind the yes. Somebody lift up the name Jesus. You can sit, you can stand. I got two more scriptures. Even after their enemy is dead, the chief priests are in a panic. They run to Pilate, and here's what they say. Can you put a guard by that man's grave? Who puts a guard in front of a grave? But they were panicked because they understood what they had seen that day at the cross. And Pilate, I don't know what he knew. I don't know what he suspected. I don't know if he was trying to play with them. But here's what he said. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. Lock it down as good as you can. Post any number of guards you want to post. I wonder if Pilate was thinking, but if that man said he's going to raise from the dead, he's probably going to raise from the dead. <laughs> Two scriptures, and I'm done. John 20. Mary, on the third day in the morning, stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down. I've been there many times in Jerusalem. She stooped down, and she looked into that tomb, she looked into the sepulcher, and when she did, and she saw those, there are two flat stone beds in that sepulcher. If you look in, the first chamber is the morning chamber. You look to the right, and there's these two flat beds. They tell us only one was ever used. And I would add, and only used very temporarily. And these two flat stone beds. I know what she was looking at. I've been there at the garden tomb. She looks in, and she sees not a dead body wrapped in grave clothes, which is what she's expecting, she sees two angels in white sitting, the one at the head, the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Hmm. One at the head, one at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. There's only one other place in all of Hebrew theology where two angels face each other over a flat surface. That place is called the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And between those two angels dwelt the Shekinah presence 
of Almighty God. Let me tell you why your Jesus could come out of that tomb. That wasn't just a prophet in that tomb. That wasn't just a martyr in that tomb. That wasn't just a teacher in that tomb. The Shekinah presence of Almighty God had indwelt that body of flesh. It wasn't a hard thing for Jesus to come out of the grave. God just rose up. He raised that body from the dead. If it wasn't hard for God to come out of the grave, then do you think it's hard for him to heal your sickness? Do you think it's hard for him to save your kids? Do you think it's hard for him to deliver you? Not at all. Oh, my goodness. Last scripture, I promise. I got more, but this is enough. John's gospel culminates with a powerful revelation given by a man whose nickname is, ironically, Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas has been called Doubting Thomas for 2,000 years because he missed a church service. Jesus shows up in the midst of the disciples, but Thomas isn't there. And he reveals himself to them. And they run to Thomas. They say, Thomas, you missed it. Jesus showed up in our room. And he showed us himself. And Thomas looks back at them and said, guys, with all respect and love, you're delusional. Because I saw him die. And I saw the wounds. And I saw the blood. And he'd have to show up and reveal himself to me. I'd have to literally, for me to believe he was alive, that he had that kind of power, I'd literally have to put my finger in the nail prints in his hands. I'd literally have to reach my hand in that gaping spear print in his side. Other than that, guys, I'm sorry, I cannot believe. And our Jesus is so merciful that he shows up at another service and he shows up to reveal himself specifically to Thomas. <laughs> and when he shows up, he says, Thomas, come here. Put your finger in the nail prints in my hand. Thrust your hand into the gaping spear wound in my side. Don't you be faithless, Thomas. You can believe me. And when Thomas understands that there are mortal wounds in a body of a man who is talking to him, any other man would have bled out in minutes. But here's Jesus talking to him. He puts two words together that hadn't been put together before. John 20 and 28, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord, <laughs> my master, my teacher, my rabbi, my Lord, and my God, Theos, Kyrios, my Kyrios and my Theos, my master, but my almighty God. And here's my point this morning, and here's why this is the last word, and here's why this is the foundation stone of the apostolic church. Jesus looked back at Thomas and said, Thomas, because you have seen me and I showed you the proof, you have believed. But Thomas, there's another group of people, they're going to live in the state of Louisiana a couple thousand years from now and they're never going to walk with me. They're never going to talk with me or sit at a campfire with me but they're going to get the same revelation of who I am and when they get it they're going to turn their world upside down. 
Thomas, you're blessed because you saw and you believed, but there's another group of people who have never seen and yet they have believed. Somebody shout, that's me. Somebody shout, that's us. Somebody shout, that's this. Now, would you reach over and grab the hand of somebody next to you? Would you lift that hand with yours in this tabernacle? Don't you waste a second. You begin to lift up the name of Jesus over them. If they're sick in their body, pray the name of Jesus over them. If you know they've got backslidden kids or grandkids, pray the name of Jesus over them. Because it's not just the name of the dead founder of our religion. Jesus is the name of Almighty God. Lift up your voice and pray. Lift up your voice and pray. Lift up your voice and pray. In Jesus' name, receive the Holy Ghost. In Jesus' name, receive your healing. In Jesus' name, receive your miracle.
strongly that there is a powerful demonstration of the gifts of healing and the power of miracles that is in this place right now. And the quickest, easiest way would be that we would turn and lay hands on one another. If you're a pastor here and you're anywhere close by, you can stand up on a pew or get out in an aisle and lift your hand and we need to lay hands on one another. There's gonna be mass miracles that are going to flow all over this auditorium right now. And it's going to happen in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here in Louisiana, we know what to do. We know how the word of faith operates. We know how the word of faith works. So to launch this out, I wonder from the front of this auditorium all the way to the back of this auditorium, if every single voice could do what Brother Woodward said, he said we could shout the name Jesus. So by the authority of the word of God and by the power of the name Jesus, I release your miracle to you right now. Lift your voice and shout, Jesus! Step up on a pew somewhere. Step out in an aisle somewhere. Lay your hand on, there goes a miracle right there in the name of Jesus. Put your hand on somebody and say, in the name of Jesus. Blinded eyes to open in the name of Jesus. Deaf ears be unstopped in the name of Jesus. Receive ye the Holy Ghost in the name of Jesus. Back be healed in the name of Jesus. Jesus. I command tumors to disappear. Tumors disappear right now in the name of Jesus. Emotional healing. You need a deliverance? Lift up your high praise to the Lord. You're being delivered right now in the name of Jesus. That heaviness is lifting off of you. That discouragement is lifting off of you. That fear is lifting off of you. In the name of Jesus. You're being released right now. You're being released right now. There is a release. There is a release. Somebody close to you, put your hand on them and say, in the name of Jesus. There is an overwhelming wave of victory. Victory in the name of Jesus.
Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory be to God. I'm so thankful that we know the healer today, man. I'm so thankful that we know the deliverer today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. He's not nervous, not one bit at any situation in this room. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory be to God. Wow. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Hallelujah. Wow. How many people are thankful they know who Jesus is? Hallelujah, hallelujah. We've still got a lot more to do today. I'm excited about what God's going to speak to us here in just a few minutes. If we can have our ushers come at this time, we're going to worship the Lord with our giving. And uh, if you uh, if you don't if you want to look at the screens, they'll be putting up different ways to give, and you'll be able to give this morning. Remember tonight, Tupelo Children's Mansion at 6:30. They will be uh, doing a presentation here at 6:30. You'll be able to be come and and listen to Tupelo Children's Mansion's presentation. Also tonight, Reverend Mark Drost is going to be bringing the Word of God, and you do not want to miss tonight. How many people are going to come believing tonight? How many people are going to come believing tonight? I'm not going to wait until he gets done preaching to start believing. I want to show up with some expectation when I walk in the door. Amen? I want to show up knowing that God's going to show up and show out tonight. And we're going to see miracle signs and wonders. We're going to see people filled for the, for with, the beautiful, uh, with the beautiful Holy Ghost. And uh, I'm excited about what God is going to do tonight. Amen. How many evangelists do we have in the room tonight, this morning? We got it. Yeah, Brother Dross right here, full-time evangelist. If we could all be seated just for a moment, we want to recognize our evangelist so that everybody can see them. If you're an evangelist, please stand up, wave your hand, let's see where all you're at. We're just going to run around the room real quick. Scream out your name and scream out where you're from. And if you're a pastor, get over and meet them after church. Uh, uh, check them out. And uh, there's something awesome about the five-fold ministry. I'm a pastor and I'm fully aware that I cannot do everything all by myself. God did not allow me or give me the talents to do that. And we need evangelists to, to help us. Amen? So if we could just start over here. Jennifer Williams, Alexandria. Caleb Lee. Derek Stewart, where are you from? Lafayette. Church Point. Awesome. Awesome.
Did we get them all? Oh, we got one right here. <laughs> Brother Klein dance. <laughs> hey, Brother Get Rose. Yes, sir. Nice. Awesome. So. Amen. Brother Martin, good to see you. Amen, amen. Get around, get to know them, get their cards, get their numbers, and get them signed up for this year. I'm a... Come on, Mississippi in the house. Amen, amen. It's an honor to have Brother Blackshire with us. We're going to sing two more songs, and we're just going to let God have his way. They're going to be singing about a strong tower. I'm thankful that I've got a strong tower that I can run into. Amen. And so we're going to begin to sing as they come and we can begin to worship again. But we're excited about what Brother, Bra what Brother Black should. That word last night. How many people enjoyed that word last night? Oh, my goodness. You wrecked me last night, Brother Blackshear. Thank you so very, very much. I'm excited about what God's going to say today. But let's all stand this morning as they begin to worship. I'm so thankful for what God has already done in this place, and I'm thankful for what he's about to do in this place. Proverbs 18 and 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into and is safe. I'm so thankful that I know that name. I'm so thankful that I know who the strong tower is this morning. Until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. All my life you have been faithful. Oh, my life, you have been fair. 
right now. Come on, I feel the goodness of God in this room. Hallelujah. I feel the goodness of God running after somebody right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Ephesians 4 talks about God gave gifts unto man. And I want to say that God gave the gift of Raymond Woodward to the apostolic movement. Amen. Something transpired in the spirit realm at the end of his message, and I'm making a shift, and I apologize to the media people, but healing is in this room. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Kleindens, for coming to this pulpit. I think that there was some physical miracles, but I feel in the Holy Ghost that there are some spirits that need a healing this morning. I'd love to have physical healing, but if my spirit is not made whole, David says this, purge me with hyssop, Psalm 51, I shall be clean, wash me, I'm going to be whiter than snow, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquity, create in me a clean heart, God, renew a right spirit within me, search me, God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. 
See if there be any wicked way in me. I want to talk to you today about the responsibility of a right spirit. There's apostolic giftings and apostolic ministry that's impregnated this crowd. But they cannot flow if our spirits are not right. I know what I said last night, but I don't care how many lifeboats we build, Brother Cox, if we don't have our spirits right. God, you're the only one that knows this room. Get us beyond, Lord, our understanding and our ability, and I'm praying that you minister only how you can minister, God, to every need, to every saint of God, to every man and woman of God under the sound of my voice. Do what only you can do, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, you can be seated. Thank you, team, so much. I'm going to just kind of wade into this. I don't know what it is about this writing of David, but it moves me. I don't know if it was the conviction that David felt from the murder of Uriah the Hittite. I don't know if it was his issue of adultery that caused him to get to this place of writing. It could be that David is still reeling from the news that the young man in 2 Samuel brought him, telling him of the death of his dear and best friend. I'll skip through all that, but if you read 2 Samuel chapter 1, there is something about that writing that takes the emotion of David to another level and to another place. And at the end, he says, how the mighty have fallen. I don't know if you've ever had somebody mighty in your life that has fallen and maybe even fallen right in front of your eyes, but it is a wound and it's a pain that you just can't get around. David is one of my favorite characters, and there's some little things about David that a lot of us overlook in the great things in his story, but David lived in the Saul's palace for probably approximately seven years. He, he was just a boy of probably 15 years old, and as a 15-year-old boy, it was quite an impression to live there. David's very closest and best friend was Jonathan, the son of the king. On top of that, the very first love in the life of David was Michael, and she was maybe, I don't know, 17, or he was maybe 17 or 18 when he married. But what I'm trying to show you is there was a connectivity there was a closeness, there was a bond, there was a personal connection for not just his king, but his best friend's father, and how about this, his father-in-law. We typically forget the connection those two men had, and so when David writes how the mighty had fallen, it's not just something that he's quoting because it's precedence, but it's something that's from within his spirit. I have mourned 
for spiritual giants that have fallen in my life. I still mourn over spiritual giants that have fallen. It's a pain like no other pain because you don't just bury it and put it in the ground and go through a process, but this grieving is ever with you. You carry it day and night. There are men that have stood in this pulpit that are no longer among us. It's a grief how the mighty have fallen. It was January the 7th, 2017, a mighty sequoia tree fell in California. That was a state park, and it was an iconic tree. It stood for over 1,000 years. It was named the Pioneer Cabin Tree. Thousands of visitors had been to that tree, and tens of thousands of pictures had been taken by the mighty sequoia. Pictures that had dated back to the 1800s show that tree being used as a shelter and a place of safety. So many travelers and pioneers over the years stood in that tree in time of storm. But when it fell, the scientists began to observe and look a little bit closer, and they came to the conclusion that that tree, even though it was standing, it was barely alive. It stood tall. It looked mighty, but a simple rainstorm brought that thousand-year-old sequoia down. It's well over 120 years ago. A tunnel had been carved into that tree, and there was a process of decay that had started. It was never healed. The tree, even though it was still standing, it was barely alive. How the mighty have fallen. What is it that causes the mighty to fall? What is it that we read in the emotions of David? What is it that begins the process of decay? David was a firsthand witness to the fall of Saul, and so he understood what it was. And so he began to pray this way, create in me a clean heart. Renew in me a right spirit. That word create, brother, Woodward is, is the same word in the Hebrew bara that was in Genesis when the Bible says, and God created. It's a word that means a divine work that only God cannot do. Or only God can do. We cannot create a divine work. It's something that only God can do. And so when we say create, it's a divine work of the Holy Ghost. And I feel like the divine of the Holy Ghost is in this room right now. And the Holy Ghost has done some divine work. But it's the next part that I want to talk about. Renew a right spirit within me. The responsibility of a right spirit is not up to God. <laughs> the responsibility of a right spirit is something that only I can do. 
God is the only one that can cleanse and wash and renew. But I am the only one that can make sure my spirit is right. And I do feel healing walked into this room just a few minutes ago. And God can do what only God can do. But there's another element of healing that only we can do. Renew in me a right spirit. Renew is a self-dependent action that only I can do. God cannot do and God will not do what only I can do for me. If keeping my spirit right was just a matter of prayer, we would all be okay. I would never battle jealousy, envy, bitterness, strife, pride on down the list, but I want to tell this wonderful audience today that I'm responsible for my spirit. I said I am responsible for my spirit. If my spirit is right, it's because I have gone in there and I have altered it. I can go to an elder and I can get direction. Pastor, I love you. Thank you for the covering. Thank you for the direction. Thank you for having veto power in my life where you can say shut up and sit down and I'll do it. We all need that in our lives. I can go to an elder and I can get direction, but I've got to cleanse my own spirit. I'm the only one that can take care of those things. Thank God for doctrine. Thank God for Brother Woodward that can set my doctrine right. And thank God for a superintendent that can give me direction. Thank God for that. But when it comes to my spirit being right, uh, I can have my doctrine right and my spirit wrong. Somebody listen to me right now. I can have my doctrine right and my spirit wrong. I can have my gifting right and my spirit wrong. I can have my separation right and I can have my spirit wrong. I'm here to tell somebody the responsibility of a right spirit. It's up to you. It's up to me. It's up to you. The responsibility of a right spirit is mine and mine alone. How the mighty have fallen, David saw it firsthand. He watched his king, his father-in-law's hero, his best friend's father. I think that's why David writes and prays with such passion because David saw firsthand what could happen when you get your spirit wrong. How's it possible? How's it occur? How can such a mighty man or woman of God who God has been flowing through and using and dealing with to reach untold masses, how is it possible for them to fail? How can they lose out with God? We've all seen it. I'll tell you how something got into their spirit. Contaminated spirit. It's a self-inflicted wound that only an altar can alter. I didn't want to preach this. I had something really good to preach. There's a spirit in this room that needs to be renewed. There's a preacher under the sound of my voice that 
can only get to a certain place, can only get to a certain dimension that can only operate so effectively until you alter some things. There's a child of God, there's a man of God, there's a mother, there's a father, there's somebody under the sound of my voice that God can heal the body, God can forgive the sin, but there's a tweaking that needs to take place in somebody's spirit. There is a difference in forgiveness, Mick, and wholeness. Thank you for being an advocate for wholeness. We need wholeness. <laughs> David and Saul, can I, can I just compare the two for just a minute? Both were chosen by God. Both were anointed by God. Both were placed into authority by God. Here's what God says about the difference. Acts 13 and 22, he said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart. Are we talking about the murderer here? Are we talking about the adulterer here? I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after all mine heart, which shall fulfill all my will. How about Saul? What does God say about him? It repenteth me, for Samuel 15 and 11, that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned his back from following me. Both men chosen, both men anointed, both men positioned. What's the difference? One man said, renew. Renew in me a right spirit. Let me tell you something. I don't care what position, what office, what pulpit, what this or with that. It does not matter if my spirit has not been renewed in the Holy Ghost every day. It doesn't matter my orator. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter my gifting or my lack thereof if my spirit is not right. Hey, Saul, don't justify your bitter spirit. I know your sin maybe wasn't as bad as David's. Both were confronted by the man of God about their failures. Saul gets angry. Listen, Saul gets angry and he tears the cloak of Samuel, the man of God. However, David falls on his face and he repents. Your reaction when the man of God points a finger in your face is paramount. It's a good indication of my spirit when my pastor tells me no. Saul was angry because Samuel refused to join him in a public act of worship. My image is more important than my integrity. When my platform presence is more important than my private 
sessions in the Holy Ghost. When the finger of God is in my face saying, you're the man, what's my reaction? One was submitted to God, one wasn't. Only the submitted to God are going to endure the inspection of God. I cannot have a right spirit without giving spiritual authority access into my spirit. Somebody in this wonderful campground service hear me today. I cannot have a right spirit without giving my spiritual authority access into my spirit. Jezebel and Herodias, they're still alive today. Jezebel and Herodias are still alive today. They still desire to cut the head off of the prophetic. They still would love to have the head of John the Baptist because it's John the Baptist that says you're in sin. And there's still a spirit of Herodias that says we've got to do away with the truth. We've got to do away with that. Let me tell you something. I need a Nathan to stick a finger in my face. I need a Nathan to stick a finger in my face. Thank God for men of God. Thank God for pastors. God cannot trust what God cannot Inspect and God will not use what God cannot trust. I'm talking to somebody today in this Louisiana Friday afternoon service that the mercies of God are unending. But there are some other things in our spirit that we have got to alter. And if we get our spirits right, if we get our spirits right and if we have the prayer renew in me a right spirit, oh God, search me, oh God, know my heart, know my faults. Hey, young preacher, I don't care about your gifting. How's your spirit? Hey, child of God, hey, man of God, I don't care about your talent. How's your spirit? Hey, child of God, don't get so intoxicated on being forgiven that we get our spirits out of whack. I love salvation. I love mercy. I love the mercy seat. I love the blood of Calvary. I love the forgiveness. I love the atonement. I love the redemption. I love the redemptive act and the redemptive power of Almighty God. But it doesn't end there. There's, there's got to be an altar in my life every day that I go and alter my life responsibility of a right spirit is mine. My anointing does not validate my wrong spirit. My anointing does not validate my wrong spirit. Don't confuse your calling with your consecrated spirit. I've confused my calling with my cross before and I heard somebody in this room tonight don't let that happen. There's a difference. There's a difference between the anointed man of God and the gifted man of God, one's willing to be purged, one's willing to be rebuked, one's willing to be corrected, one's willing to be chastised, one's willing to be crucified. If I can't be purged, I can't be used. Take up your cross and follow me. Is it close by? Where did I put it? Have I seen it today? Have I been around it today? Where's the last words? Where did I put it? Babe, where's my cross? 
The only way I can keep my spirit right is to stay near the cross. If I was a singer, I would sing near the cross. <laughs> near the cross. The closer I get to the cross, the less of me I like. Altars are an amazing thing. How they alter us, how they change us. You know, it's not a coincidence that God told David, you're, you're not going to be the one that I'm going to let build the temple, but I'll, I'll let your son Solomon build it. Are you kidding me? The offspring of an adulterous act? Really? When Solomon built the temple, the layout was nearly the same. The, the ark was the same. But the altar that Solomon built, please understand this, the altar that Solomon built was 54 times larger. It was the dominant piece of furniture. If anybody understood the need and the significance of a big altar, it would be the offspring of David and Bathsheba. If anybody understood the significance, it would be him. Let me tell you, our altars better be bigger than our arks. Our altars better be bigger than our hearts. Our, our giftings, our, our callings, our ministry of miracles, they better never exceed our altars. I can get to the altar without going to the Holy of Holies, but I cannot get to the Holy of Holies. There are no backstage passes. There are no fast passes. There are no backstage entrances into the Holy of Holies. I can only get there by going through and around and on top of the altar. If I get this wrong, if I get this backwards, if I bypass putting my spirit on the altar, I'm going to die in that holy place. I can't get it wrong. David said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't take it from me. Could it be the retention of the holy anointing of God was contingent upon him renewing his spirit? I'm responsible for my spirit being right. I'm responsible. You know what Jesus said? Here's what Jesus said. I think we forget this. Jesus said offenses will come. And yet we get so wounded when they do. Here's the bottom line. Everybody in the room has been done wrong. Everybody in the room has been done wrong. Not a person in the room has not been done wrong. The important thing is what do we do with it? What am I going to do when Saul picks up a javelin and throws it at me?
if I get this wrong, if I get this backwards, what am I going to do? Am I going to let an offense lie dormant? A wounded spirit. Am I going to let a past conflict fester? There's too many lost people outside of these walls for me to let an infection lie dormant. Let me tell you what I feel in the Holy Ghost right now, and I, 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 I don't want to overemphasize that, but there are mighty sequoias in this room that stand tall and they stand proud. But we're just one storm away. Oh God, renew in me a right spirit. David, what are you going to do? When Saul begins to chase you. Saul, what are you going to do when your armor-bearing son-in-law makes front-page news? How things could have been different. A wound, a contamination, an abuse, a contrite spirit. It's got to be dealt with. God may have forgiven. God may have cleansed. Here's your spirit. I want to just tell somebody here today, stop holding somebody else responsible for only what you can alter. David, I'm finished. Let's stand. David, there's a lot riding on your spirit being right. David, there's a lineage. That really matters that you get this right, David. From your loins comes a lineage that changes everything. You know what I feel, Brother Weber? I feel that in this room are the genes of apostolic, explosive, world-changing revival. It's in our genes. It's in our DNA. But David, if you don't get this right, the Messiah is coming out of your lineage. The promise, the Savior of the world. Could it be that God came in on a Friday afternoon because somebody here has promise, redemptive DNA in your spirit that could alter an entire community, that entire area? But it's dependent on you getting this right. David, if you don't get this right, everything changes. Don't you know the devil understands that? Don't you know the devil understands that?
But if he could get something between me and you, if he could get something between you and him, if he could get just a little something in my spirit, I don't care if it's justified or not, that's irrelevant. The revival we've been talking about all week, we've been hearing preached of all week, the, the promise that this, the that could be contingent on somebody getting this right. Man of God, you know what's at stake, ma'am, you know what's at stake, mother, sir, do you know what's at stake? If David goes down, Jesus cannot be called the son of David. Responsibility of a spirit being right, it's mine and mine alone. Here's what I've come to the conclusion at 55 years old. Here's what I've come to understand. Hell does not have the authority to take my anointing. Satan cannot destroy the divine destiny that God has laid out before me. Saul's spear cannot derail the day the oil ran down my head. The only thing that can paralyze the promise that God has laid before me is my choice to keep my spirit right. Come on, David. I've seen seeds lie dormant for years. Infection lie dormant for years. They have found seeds in the Middle East that are thousands of years old. They have put them in the right conditions and they have had it water. And those thousand-year-old seeds have sprouted. I don't care how deeply you think it's buried the right conditions. Come on, David. The lineage is dependent on you getting this right. Come on, these altars are open. What are you going to do, David? Renew. Renew. Renew with me. Come on, let there be a healing take place in this campground that there be a healing of somebody's spirit sweep into this room right now let there be somebody that roots out an old seed of bitterness and lays it on an altar right now I can't do it for you Bishop Weber can't do it for you Brother Kleindentz can't do it. Sister Mangan can't do it for you. Come on, you got to get it out on the altar on your own. It's my responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's my 
responsibility. There's a lot at stake, David. Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. I think a community is waiting on somebody to get this right. I think a ministry is waiting on somebody to get this right. I think a destiny is waiting on somebody to get this right. Oh! Come on, pastor. Come on, preacher, we're not exempt. Matter of fact, we stand at the front of the list. I gotta get this right. I gotta get it right. Search me. Renew me. Search my spirit. Search me, God. Holiness, holiness is what you want. Come on, David. Come on, David. Come on, let there be a renewal. Let there be a renewal.